0: And now I would like to introduce our joint presenters today Dr. Mark Rosenberg and Becca Hawkins, who are Directors of Compassionate Care with Providence St. Joseph. Dr. Rosenberg is an internist and faculty with the internal medicine residency program at Providence Portland Medical Center, where he served as the program director for 25 years. Becca, a nurse practitioner with specialty in oncology, Hospice and Palliative Care previously served as Director of Palliative Care at Providence St. Joseph Health. Their complementary backgrounds and interests have shaped their work on compassion, which is centered on using compassion as a rejuvenating force in turbulent healthcare environments. Both have presented extensively regionally as well as nationally, and we're truly delighted to have them bring their expertise and their energy to us today so thank you becca hawkins and mark rosenberg
1: thanks thanks so much um, it is our pleasure to be here and we really want to thank the organizers for giving us a chance to speak with the audience we want to thank everybody who's on this call too for taking the time for making the time um, it's been a crazy few days uh, and so feels especially important that we can spend this hour together. Um, We also want to thank our team that really makes our work both fun and um, better, more creative. Laura Chun, Krista Nelson and Leslie Brown. Um, We'd like to start really by pausing. We'd like to pause and think about the 300,000 people That have been without power for the last 24 hours. To think about the many thousands of people that braved the storm without houses. And just to take a moment to think about the things that we've experienced together, even over these last couple of days. Thank you for that. What we want to talk about today is. Our experiences over the last year. This has been. An unprecedented year, I think in all of our experiences. There have been times of. Great joy and there have been times of huge challenge. And what we'd like to do today is to reflect on the impact that this year, that this time of COVID has had on us as healthcare providers. We want to think about both the challenges that we faced and how that imp- has impacted us, and we also want to begin to explore ways of thinking about moving forward. It feels like the vaccine has created a sense of an inflection point. This is a time where we're starting to look for the to the future. And we wanna think with you about how moving forward can be done in a way that is most healing and we can take the most forward in a positive way. Despite the fact that Beck and I have been working together for 10 years, we have not yet been able to generate any conflicts of interest and so we have no disclosures. What we'd like to do today is to review data on the psychosocial impact of this pandemic, focusing specifically on healthcare workers. There's been a number of grand rounds in this exact venue looking at the impact on patients. Today we want to focus on us we want each of us to think about each other and about ourselves we want to discuss the concept of soul injury and its pivotal role as we move forward as we begin to try and recover from covid and we want to describe resources and strategies that we hope will strengthen and sustain us as we move forward it has been a crazy year Nobody needs to say that. And I don't need to run through the different things that have impacted us over the last year, just to know that our personal lives and our professional lives have been different this year than ever before. This particular slide doesn't include the politics that have impacted impacted us all greatly, And it doesn't really um, include the the medical impacts, the personal fears, the disruption of team, the change of venues, the change of workflows that we've all experienced. It didn't take into account how we've been separated from each other by masks and face shields and virtual conferences. For the for the decade that we've been working together, Beck and I have tried to make the point, although never as eloquently as Rachel Naomi Remen makes it, is that working in healthcare is intrinsically hard. We have signed up to be immersed in suffering and to not be touched by it, is as realistic as trying to walk through water without getting wet. But this year has felt different. This year, we're not just getting wet. There's been sort of a tsunami, a series of waves that have come over us. And I think we all feel sort of drenched. And it shows in the literature, uh, wherever Healthcare workers have been assessed, whether it's healthcare workers in China, physicians in Italy, ICU docs around the world, or healthcare workers in New York City, the rates of mental distress, of psychological trauma are highly prevalent. This study from nine ICUs in the United Kingdom. Found that amongst physicians, 7% reported problem drinking that was new during COVID, 31% depression, increase in anxiety, increase in PTSD. And when you think about the ICU, you think about ICU nurses. And even more remarkable is the prevalence of psychic pain being experienced by nurses who are in the unit continuously, who are in the room with the patients continuously, who are communicating with the families that can't be present. All of us in healthcare are experiencing stress that we are not used to. And that's led to this overlapping group of syndromes. Depression, burnout, PTSD, these are all labels that we have become familiar with. They're labels that we know manifestations of, the anhedonia and the psychomotor slowing of depression, the cynicism, the emotional exhaustion, and the sense of just not doing a good job that can accompany burnout. Perhaps slightly less familiar with PTSD manifestations of hyperarousal, of avoidance of um, stimuli that might remind one of a trauma, and intrusive re-experiencing flashbacks that can happen, whether in dreams or while exposed to a stimulus that is reminding. This is sort of the standard PTSD kind of description. And then there's what's becoming known in the literature as complex PTSD. Typical PTSD usually is the result of a single episode of trauma, um, an earthquake, a 9-11, Complex PTSD is what is associated with repetitive or chronic kind of trauma and has to do, shows itself as emotional dysregulation, disruption of relations, and a negative view of self and sort of of the world uh, in general. So what I would point out to all of you is the overlapping nature of these symptoms and that while these are sort there are clinical criteria for them one can have one or two of the manifestations without fully having a clinical syndrome and we're used to thinking of these as clinical diagnoses looking outward as providers diagnosing depression Thinking about PTSD. But what we really think is that in this moment, we need to be thinking about this for ourselves. Am I finding a difficulty finding pleasure? Am I being hyper aroused or finding my emotions dysregulated? To begin to notice those kind of things within ourselves feels like one of the really important steps toward moving forward, moving toward healing. And when we bring it down to the individual level, we find that those kind of symptoms really are quite prevalent. This is a study from Mayo Clinic and it asked hospitalists about their well-being. It was a survey they used in 2019 pre-COVID and then again in July of 2020 in the middle of COVID. And as you can see, the percent of hospitalists that reported feeling tense, feeling isolated, or having poor overall well-being dramatically jumped in the year between the two surveys. Might any of us feel similarly? And in fact, looking at Providence data, we see that Um, when we asked about burnout. In 2019 we were doing work with burnout and very concerned that provider burnout was in the 45 to 48 percent range. As you can see in this slide, now in October of 2020, burnout for the system overall was 52-53 percent and in Oregon was up at 60 percent. Significant issue amongst our provider community. And when the question was asked during the past 12 months, if you had thoughts of taking your own life. Similarly, a uh, significant percentage. Answered in the affirmative. This speaks to the chronic nature of the trauma we have been both experiencing and toughing our way through. And what we want to do is to explore how do we move forward from this this place this time because these traumas eventuate in other things so looking at a population of 1300 physicians a third of whom were residents a variety of survey instruments to assess what the researchers at the Mayo Clinic found was that they were able to distinguish between the impact of depression and burnout. When you look just at the burnout literature, burnout is associated with suicidal ideation as well as with medical errors. In using multiple surveys, they were able to find that when you corrected for the presence of depression, burnout was associated, very strongly with medical errors but not with suicidal ideation and depression was associated specifically and not surprisingly with suicidal thoughts. And when you then look at other literature, the literature around PTSD, we find there's very strong connection between PTSD and suicidal thoughts and suicidal actions and a a slighter, because it hasn't been looked at as much, connection with medical errors. And so we see, again, looking at these three syndromes and pieces of the syndromes as important warning signs, risk factors, as well as targets for uh, improvement work to help us feel better. And the suffering that we're doing now, it's an opportunity. Um, Again, Rachel Naomi Remen says it's the wisdom that we gain from our suffering that makes us able to heal. And I think we've all experienced that in our work as physicians. Seeing the suffering of others, learning from that allows us to help others in a deeper and different way. So from our perspective, we see the fact that right now we are suffering, is an opportunity to gain wisdom if we can look inside of ourselves and begin to te- step forward with self-compassion and with collegial connection. But we're not very good at doing that. Um, this is a study that uh, will go to press in the next month or two But uh, again, from Mayo Clinic and asking the question of residents, would you seek professional help for a serious emotional concern? They asked residents and they asked age-matched non-medical people the same question. And as you can see, the rate of definitely seeking help was twice as high in the non-medical community as as it was in the medical community. And the feeling I probably or certainly wouldn't seek help, also dramatically higher among residents. And so maybe residents are atypical and because they're in a training environment, because they're new, because they're uncertain, they're less likely to seek help. Unfortunately, that's not what the literature would say. Variety of studies. Back in 2011, um, surgeons who were bothered by suicidal thoughts—not just having them, but bothered by them—only 26% had sought professional help. Physicians identified as higher moderate risk on a uh, screen on a screening test for um, depression and suicidal thoughts only 5.2% had previously sought support, and similarly with nurses. There is much in our culture, our medical culture, that seems to stand in the way of us acknowledging and then seeking support. And another factor that might make it challenging is our own self-assessment. Mayo Clinic has a standardized physician well-being index And they looked specifically at physicians who scored in the bottom 30 percentile of well-being, so were the least well of their physician group. And of those physicians in that bottom 30th percentile, 70% of them thought their well-being was above average. So number one, we may not be great at self-assessment. And number two, when we recognize problems, we may not be active in seeking support. And so there are a lot of reasons for this and this is just touches on them, but I think. We as a provider community and each of us as individuals need to think about what are our barriers. So one is our general cultural stigma around needing help. We should be strong we should be flawless, that if we admit to depression, if we admit admit to um, really having psychological suffering, that may be a threat to licensure or credentialing. Although most states and most organizations have changed their licensure and credentialing language to be acute right now impairment, or removing questions around that entirely. Our professional and organizational culture. Is designed for us to be strong, for us to be present. When we need to step away, when we need to take a day off, when we need to take a moment after a patient death. We're leaving extra work for other people. How do we handle that altogether? Getting support can be a challenge because how do you find the time during the workday? How do you get away from the office? How do you get away from the hospital to do it? And what the literature also says is that we, because we have better opportunity, do more self prescribing and work with our colleagues in an informal way to obtain medicines that we think might be helpful without doing the formal work of consultation. And so that's. A challenge, that's a summary of how hard it's been for us. And what we'd like to do is spend the rest of the time. Sharing ways of moving forward.
2: So I'm going to pick up. From where Mark left off and just um, have us imagine the after COVID experience. We know we're not there yet but we can hopefully see that that is possible in the near future. As Mark just described, COVID has been an intense experience both personally and professionally and for some more than others. For some people who were on the front lines of actually caring for COVID patients, their experience um, might be quite different than those of us who are doing something different to support them. But all of us have some experience of needing to come out of COVID. So in doing that, Mark and I decided that we would look for how we would um, think about the post COVID experience. I'm sorry, I can't advance my slides. (laughs) Let me.
0: Try this again. There
2: we go, so. Mark and I started looking in the literature for what might be out there about thinking um, around how we're coming out of COVID. And for some reason, uh, people have not been talking about this. And so we would like to describe to you what we think the experience might look like. We think about COVID experience of needing to integrate what we've been through, and then how to recover from what we've been through. So it's this sort of unwinding from COVID that we're interested in and have some thoughts about. We adapted some of our thinking from Debra Grassman. She's a VA nurse practitioner who's worked with over 10,000 veterans at the end of their life. One of the things she learned from working with them is they all had a different experience coming out of the war that they participated in. And although we haven't exactly been in a war, in some ways we have, and we also realize that we have been in a prolonged experience of both suffering and chaos. And that is only really equivalent to what people experience during war. It isn't the same um, after a natural disaster because there's usually some leveling off of the experience But this has been a very protracted experience of feeling overwhelmed for all of us in some degree. So how would we think about recovering from this? Deborah talks about apparent recovery, incomplete recovery and successful recovery. And so we thought this model to some degree fit a little bit about what our experience might be like. It brings to mind how we're going to recover from all of the things we've put in place to be safe. How are we going to unwind from social distancing and how are we gonna feel about that? How are we going to unwind from our hypervigilance, both for ourselves and for our family members? And the feelings that we've acquired around people that helped maintain safety and those who didn't. So there's several um, stages uh, that Deborah describes, and we're gonna describe them to you. So apparent recovery is where people appear to be doing well after a traumatic event or prolonged traumatic event. But what's really happening to these individuals is they actually have delayed recovery. And they might have sort of low level clinical issues of depression, anxiety, maybe even low-level PTSD. Incomplete recovery is really when people aren't able to really recover themselves back to a level of healthy coping and living. They are struggling, they may use maladaptive techniques as Mark showed in one of the slides of people overusing um, various substances to help them cope. Um so we know that there's going to be some people, according to their level of trauma and their ability to adapt to what they've been through to recover completely. There will be those who successfully recover, who take this COVID experience and integrate it into their life and be changed by it, but not be totally demoralized by it. And so we're hoping that that's the majority of us, but it's important that we also think that how we're going to help those people who are having more trouble. So as, Ma- as Mark um, pointed out, there's three different types of experiences that people are currently going through or may in the future. Depression, burnout, and symptoms of PTSD. So in depression, People, as you know, have this deep sense of sadness and loss of pleasure. And I'm sure all of us have had that to some degree. And it's important for us to think if that applies to us today. Feelings of of being burnout, where people feel too tired to go on, feel untrusting of either the government, um, untrusting maybe of other people in your family, feeling untrusting of the organization at large. And then feelings of PTSD where people feel shame and guilt. Um, As Mark talked about PTSD, there's a direct exposure to trauma. It can also be people who have witnessed a a great deal of trauma. I think that includes a great deal of us today. And as Mark suggested, we're not very good of knowing how to deal with that kind of trauma. PTSD has very clear, you know, outline of what that means to be in PTSD where people have recurrent nightmares or memories. It doesn't mean that people are weak. It means that they're trying to incorporate a very tra- traumatic experiences or series of experiences into their being. And because of that, they start to have feelings of guilt and shame when they can't actually cope with what they have been through. And so we thought it would be interesting to sort of unpack how PTSD has two components to it, a moral injury and a soul injury. And again, this language of soul injury comes from Deborah, but we think it speaks so much to maybe the experiencing we are having is not full-blown PTSD, but clearly um, a change in our well-being. So Moral injury is a violation of really our beliefs. We're asked to do something that is conflictual with what we hold in a deep belief. Soul injury is really an injury to your being, your human nature. And it causes you to have deep feelings of feeling sad, pain, or even deep suffering. The way Deborah uh, Grassman describes soul injury, it's a, a spectrum of room wounds that range from just a traumatic event, which some of us have been through, maybe the death of a loved one, to this insidious sort of experience, which many of you probably have been through, of, of sort of Saying this is what I've signed up to do, but never in your life had you, could you have imagined the series of things that have unfolded during COVID. As we experience a soul injury, we begin to have a a change in our being where we are unable to sense the goodness of our being and really start having feelings um, that we're, we're not as worthy or we're not as capable as we used to be. Deborah described some of the soul injury symptoms like this. So a fractured self image. For some of us, this sounds like this, like I felt really capable as a doctor or a nurse or respiratory therapist or social worker. And then COVID came and I was rendered helpless on many occasions to really help people at the deepest level. There's a feeling for some people of loss of self-confidence and a disconnection from really who I am, our identity of ourselves as a good parent, a capable provider, um, caregiver. And so we start to, it starts to sort of erode at our self-confidence and we become disconnected from who we identified ourselves to be in confidence. Soul injuries can also um, shrink, again, as I said, sort of this inner goodness that we hold on to. Most of us may have moments of not feeling good about ourselves, but we try to keep a sense of understanding that we are basically good human individuals. But COVID's really changed so much of that, so much of how we get validation, and so many ways that we were able to make a difference were stripped away for us. A feeling that um, there's sort of a hole that causes a spiritual distress, an existential distress in us. And we might even begin to question, where was God in all of this? We might also feel betrayed by another person, administration, or organization. There's a lot of different ways soul injuries can manifest themselves. This language seems so fitting to Mark and I, though because it sort of takes into being the fact that this experience has affected all of us to some degree. And not in a clinical um, maladaptive way, but in a way that we need to take note of. So we started looking at soul injury recovery. What would it take for us to recover? And what Deborah found is that at least for the veterans and maybe for ourselves as well, there was three main components. There was the work of grieving, the work of forgiveness, and the work of self-compassion. All of those we had already thought as important work for us as we unwind from COVID. We also realize and believe that connection is the foundation to really starting all of this recovery. And I don't have to tell you, that our connections have been radically disrupted, and therefore we probably have a lot we need to do to put this foundation back to place. So we're, we don't have time to, to delve into each of these deeply, but we're going to look at each of, each of them briefly. So grieving. I think a lot of us in healthcare would say, you know, grieving is something I don't have time to do. It's not the luxury I have uh, to grieve every patient. In fact, that's one of the things we've heard from people on the front lines. There was so many deaths. I got to the point where I was no longer able to grieve or be present um, to my emotions around the death. I think it's important for us to step back and realize that grief, when not um, really felt and not really processed, stays with us. It stays in the deepest part of us. And so if your first thought is, I don't really have any grief work to do, some of the questions to ask yourself is, what have you lost in this experience of COVID? What wedding, what birth did you miss? What babies haven't you met yet in your family? What um, special holiday or celebration did you have to alter because of COVID? Who did you not get to say goodbye to? Who haven't you seen that you dearly love? There are so many multiple losses in this COVID experience. We all have grieving to do. And grieving can be both the smallest of things to grieve to the biggest. We've had so many people say to us as we talk to them about this COVID experience, you know, I feel guilty even saying that I'm heartbroken over the fact that I couldn't have my wedding when I know there's hundreds of thousands of people who have passed away. How can I grieve that? And I would say to you all grief's important and it affects all of us. For forgiveness And forgiveness, um, you might say is something again that I don't need to do. I have no forgiveness work to do. So I would ask you, what do you still feel angry about? Are you angry over the fact that you might've been exposed because you lacked the proper um, protective equipment at one point? Do you feel angry over the fact that we didn't get a vaccine distributed quickly enough or to the right people? Do you feel angry that there was unjustness in how we cared for people, that the most marginalized people did not receive the same care as those who could afford it? There's a lot to be angry about. There's both this kind of forgiveness that we need to do is sort of the forgiveness of outward anger, looking outward. And then self-compassion sort of speaks to the anger we turn towards ourselves. So the feeling of, I should have been better, I could have maybe made a difference in that person's care if only I had done X, Y, Z. Or self-compassion over the fact that I'm not feeling like a good mother, slash teacher Why my kids are at home and I'm also trying to hold down a full-time job. We need to have self-compassion over the fact that we've been stretched thin. We've been stretched thin in our multiple roles as wives, husbands, partners, as um, doctors, nurses, all caregivers, providers, We've been stretched thin in our ability to be a good friend, be a good parent, be able to reach out when we ourselves were struggling and knew that somebody else needed us, but we didn't have capacity for it. How can we forgive ourselves for those moments and just be kind to ourselves? That's self-compassion. The other thing we wanted to sort of talk about is all of that soul injury recovery is about inner work. But Mark and I also recognize that there's outward recovery as well. These relationships that have been damaged by COVID also deserve some recovery. And as we thought about them, we thought about how our personal relationships have been damaged and how we need to resurrect them. Like, how are we going to recover and unwind from COVID and start reaching out to people in a way that feels positive? How are we going to reconstruct our communities when we have spent months over a year separating ourselves in community? Keeping ourselves from each other to protect ourselves. How do we psychologically, emotionally and spiritually recover from that? and then our work although we go to work we're supportive of each other at work we're also distant from each other at work by both what we wear we need to wear for protection but also how we see each other now we've lost the physical contact we've lost the knowing of how each other's really doing and so there's some recovery at work as well but it's possible All of these recoveries are possible through, again, the foundation of connection. That's one of the things we want to talk about and highlight. Again, Rachel, who's very wise, talks about connection. And she really talks about it being the most basic, powerful ways to connect to another person is to listen. Just listen. And that's still possible whether we do it you know, on the phone or we do it um, like this on the screen. But as we unwind to remember that we will all have stories. We will all have grief. We will all have moments of, of what has happened to us and what we can give each other is true attentive listening. I love what Rachel says at the very end. A loving silence often has more power to heal and to connect the the most well-intentioned words. So think about that. When you're talking to someone, you do not have to have the answer. You just have to be an attentive listener. We thought it was important to talk about a few of the uh, more formal programs that are out there. So that foster connection, We've been doing virtual connecting conversations, which are forums created to really allow people to share authentically about how they're feeling. Um, These are similar to sports rounds. Mark and I've been conducting these um, really across uh, Oregon, both with caregivers as well as core leaders to just really allow a venue to be honest, open and authentic about what this experience has been like for all of us. Peer-to-peer is a program that many of you have in your hospitals. It's a way for a doctor-to-doctor, nurse-to-nurse to to connect to each other. And just to, you know, we do this sometimes informally, but this is a way for us to, to be able to say, hey, I see, you know, my colleague over there is really needing somebody to connect to and you can make a peer-to-peer referral and then somebody will be connected to them. There's so many of us that just need a little helping hand. We, We don't need intensive therapy. We just need somebody to walk up beside us and ask us, how are you doing today? Or I see you're having a tough day. How can we be of help to you? The concierge program, thankfully, has started in Oregon as well. This program provides direct um, one-to-one free counseling. It is confidential. It is online. We have 25 free visits if we sign up for it. And I think this is an amazing program that we're so thankful to have because it allows us to be able, as caregivers, to see somebody in real time and not feel like we might run into one of our patients or someone might see us going to a counselor because we still have the stigma around that. And so this allows us to do it in a confidential, private way. So I encourage you to look into that as well. Another way that we're providing connection is that our compassion team, Laura Chen, offers daily mindfulness support groups and they're offered every day, Monday through Friday, from 12 to 1230. And they're just dial in. They spend about 15 minutes checking in to see how people are doing. You can talk or not talk, and then there's 15 minutes of silent meditation um, or, or um, directed meditation, and this has been wildly helpful for people. There's a lot of people that are connecting in this way on a regular basis. We wanted to, we wanted to also say there's a variety of resources. I think one of the things that Mark and I are and our team is very passionate about is to start breaking down the stigma around the fact that it's okay to not be okay. It was before COVID and it is definitely okay to not be okay in and after COVID. And there's a variety of resources that can be helpful to you um, that will allow you to be able to connect to somebody, to help you process what you've been through and to really start to rebuild how we're gonna build ourselves back from this this huge mammoth experience of COVID. And lastly, just to say that, you know, connection we feel is really one of the most powerful things and has always been even before COVID to really keep ourselves well. Connection we know was the antidote to burnout. It allowed us to be compassionate to ourselves as well as to others. But one of the most amazing things that COVID did to us is it totally disrupted all of our connections, not just the connections of you know, needing to wear PPE and so you have those sort of physical distances between you or the social distancing. But COVID really stripped away our most basic connections to our elderly parents, to our friends' children, to our friendships that were so vital to us to go and have a drink or go for a walk or run after work. So we need to really focus on how we can start being connected to each other. And so we just offer to you these few ideas of how to build connection And at the same time, recognize how you're going to step yourself through each and every day to think about your wellness. To say, if any of these things we suggested or showed you today ring true to you, that it's okay to reach out for help. In fact, not even okay, but totally vital to reach out for help. So we're going to pause there, see what kind of questions we have We hope that this has been helpful to you. Uh, We hope that this has made you ponder and think about how you yourself or your colleague is doing. And to start to break down some of the stigma we have of trying to stay strong when we've been through one of the most amazing experiences in a a lifetime really. So we're gonna pause there and see what kind of
0: questions we have. Great. Great. Many Many thanks for your presentation presentation today. And uh, a moment to to go ahead ahead and uh, and ask questions. questions. Um, I have one question up here so far, Um, Becca and Mark, uh, how do we step back for self-care, self-care when remote and, and, remote and telecommuting, telecommuting remove and the normal separation of work and family? There's a blurring. Go, ahead, go
1: ahead. Becky. You go first, <laughs> I'll go second.
2: Oh, Can you repeat the question again? I think it was kind of multifaceted. Stepping of back. Course.
0: Um so a thought here, how do we step back for self-care when remote and telecommuting remove the normal separation of work and family or work and home? There's been a blurring of those worlds. Yeah. So of course we
2: don't have the exact uh, right answer, but I think one thing is is for me, I would say, is to be in mindfulness to be in the moment of whatever we're doing, to say that um, when I'm at work, I'm completely at work, I'm here in this moment, I'm here with this person, with this patient, with this colleague, and the same when we're at home, instead of um, allowing our minds to drift back to work, to try to be fully present at home, knowing that is really, really challenging. And so that's where the self-compassion piece also comes in mark i'm sure you want
1: to add to that and and i think that it is really hard now i think becca demonstrated that during her her talk she's sitting there giving grand rounds and her cat is purring and climbing on her lap and Mm -hmm. it's how do we uh, handle that with equanimity and i think that's partially by being accepting it's like it's not the way it was. I don't get to have my 15 minute drive to work. But on the other hand, I don't have to drive 15 minutes to work. And so it's I think it's holding the the good and the bad of this um, together and recognizing things are different and not being judge, judgmental about it.
2: I think the other thing I would say, Laura, before we move on is that even before COVID, mark and i were always messaging there was no separation of work and life that work and home life is our whole life and that we should really love all of our life even with the complexities of that
0: thanks so much for that i think we had a a recent speaker also talk on the idea of um work-life harmony (laughs) um Uh, I I noticed another comment coming through here that I will just read. Um, I appreciate the increased visibility and promotion of personal wellness and connection with one another. But isn't burnout, at least in part, a systemic problem that needs to be addressed by the system to fix some of the problems? Individuals burned out by doing more work in less time and with less resources should not be told that it is their responsibility to take better care of themselves.
1: We, we will, between us, 200% agree with that comment. That I think when we think about wellness and we think about wellness at work, the, the Stanford model of that I think is a simple and good way to think about it, that efficiencies of practice, culture of wellness, individual resilience are all important in terms of our wellness, but it cannot be that organizations, whether it's Providence, whether it's healthcare, whether it's AT&T, says to their employees, do more yoga, eat better, and everything will be okay. It's not, that's not an acceptable response. It's a, but it is a blending Because I don't think we as individuals want to say we have no stake in our own well-being. And so I think that the attention to individual wellness, the attention to connection between colleagues is crucial. And that gives us energy to push on the organization to create a culture of wellness that supports it.
2: And I would just add that I think some of you probably took the survey that we did. um, 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 Over a year ago, asking about how people's well-being and suicide ideation that actually launched the. At least Oregon region to really start talking about this, so I think you and then the AMA. um, Survey came out, so I think. (laughs) slowly and probably too late, but but the organization's starting to respond and worry about people's well-being in a real way, in a different way.
0: Great, thank you. Um, Another comment coming through. We have noticed an increase in patient complaints about their care and experience and also on discrimination. How do I best deal with this and How best to give feedback to the provider? I feel like providers already are stretched very thin and I do not want to add more negativity.
1: We weren't sure if there was more to to (laughs) that or if you're just pausing with the gravity of the question, because that's really important and hard because I think all the things we've said about. Providers today, the stresses we're under. um, I won't judge more or less, but certainly apply equally to patients. And so no one is on their best. Everybody's a little edgy. Nobody's as resilient. And I think one of the things that's rolled into the whole COVID experience was the sort of explosion of societal awareness of racial injustice and so we're dealing with multiple things at the same time so I think the giving of feedback in tough times is another whole grand rounds obviously but I think that giving feedback with compassion because with the true belief that that provider wants to provide caring care to that patient coming with that really deep belief that's not words that's a heart feeling if you you as the feedback giver can get to a place where you say i care about this provider i know they care about the patient i'm going to give them something that will help them do better i think that's the critical first step and then the words and the language are almost a less important second step
0: Great, thank you for that. And I'm mindful of our time. We have just a few minutes before nine o'clock. Um, welcome other comments from the audience. Um, I'll pose one question myself and um, maybe particularly as, as I sit here hosting a, a virtual Grand Rounds. Um, I wanna return to this foundation of connection. Um, many of us have become quite accustomed to meeting virtually um, there are some benefits in terms of accessibility and less use of resources and I wondered um, if there's any evidence base or even just your own thoughts and experience for the importance of meeting physically versus virtually with other people
2: um I don't know about the research but I can tell you my own personal bias is I am really looking forward to getting back together with my team and physically hugging them. And um, I do think, it, I mean, we know some research, for example, with babies, right, that weren't um, hugged or, or touched. Touch is such a powerful uh, healer. I know in my work in palliative care, sometimes there are no words, there's only my touch and sense of presence that moves into the hearts of patients and families. And so I think that though there's no way to replace being physically close, but this is better than nothing, I think is how most people looked at it. And I think we'll end up with a hybrid model, which, you know, only years from now will tell us what the impact of that will be.
1: And 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 to add just briefly to that, I mean the last 36 hours we've been without power at our house. And so not been on video meetings, not been calling people. And all of a sudden it's like, whoa, that's really important. I really miss that. And so I agree 100% with what Beck said. And I think to appreciate how wonderful it is that we can even be together in this type of community, in this kind of moment, um, it's a blessing that wouldn't have been there 10 years ago, 15 years ago.
0: Great thanks so much Um, and I really want to um, thank both of you um, under 20 inches of snow and three days without power um, coming up uh, with a wonderful grand rounds to connect all of us if there's any specific contact um, information that you wanted the audience to be aware of for um, a few of the specific resources that you mentioned, um, feel free to send that along and we could include with our follow-up email for claiming CME. Um, and I think we'll we'll end there for this morning. Many thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Take care, everyone.
1: Bye-bye.